Welcome to Joe Tish Conversations. I'm Ben Collins. This is a series of programs presented by Pujanet, P-U-J-A dot N-E-T, your Vedic resource on the web. Each show in the series presents an aspect of Jyotish or Hindu astrology in simple terms so the depth of this knowledge can be appreciated by anyone. In this week's show, Penny Farrow presents her insights into the ways in which the relative strength or weakness of each of the nine planets is reflected in the nature of the individual's life experience. Well, good afternoon, Penny. What's our topic for today? Are we going to do something new? New? Is there anything new, Ben? Not under the sun. (laughs) Right. There's nothing new under the sun. And uh, we are going to uh, actually tie together some things and then uh, start to put in uh, the pieces of the uh, puzzle, the tapestry, if you will, of an interpretation. One of the very important pieces, which is the meanings of the grahas themselves, However, just to frame where we are up to this point, kind of tie things together, uh, we've spent quite a lot of, uh, I hope, wonderful time exploring Jyotish's role in the Vedic Sampradaya, in the tradition. And then we've spent a number of uh, podcasts, starting with how that cosmic kaleidoscope, that beautiful cover of stars and grahas, talks to us. How did the Rishis translate these patterns into the language of Jyotisha? And the most important first um, step in that is understanding that the direct perception of the cosmic pattern uh, is where this all begins. So we spent quite a lot of time, didn't we, um, understanding the emotions um, and then understanding how to map the heavenly vault, the cosmic kaleidoscope, mm-hmm. how to map that. And we discussed that there are two um, major schools of mapping, although there are many, many, many ways of representing um, the 12 bhavas and the nine grahas and the 12 rashis in India. There's ingeniously beautiful um Janmat Patrika, as they call it, horoscope renderings. It could be very elaborate, very gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But the two most uh, prevalent ones is the representation based on the Rashis, which is the South Indian representation, and the representation based on the Bhavas, which is the North Indian, a kind of more dynamic-looking uh, chakra with all those diagonal lines that produce a kind of sense of motion or urgency. The other one is calmer. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's because life on Earth is not as calm as life up in the stars. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. And uh, and we uh, you know we worked on um, the fact that the star groups wind up showing up in the different directions of the sky, and that winds up getting assigned different bhavas depending on which sky group, which star group, I should say, is on the eastern horizon at the time of the event. And so all that got put together. We, we put together the um, formation of the chart, which bhava was what, uh, where the grahas would wind up getting mapped, and where the rashis would fall. And now that we have all of that, what do we do with it? 
<laughs> so hopefully this is a, a good context for where we've come out uh, and what we need to do from here. So, okay, we have strong grahas. Um, there's nine of them. What do they mean? Well, this is the next big, huge chunk. And, you know, our purpose, of course, then in doing these uh, podcasts is to inspire rather than to literally teach. This isn't a teaching venue, but hopefully we can do the inspiration so that people will follow up if they're interested or at least be more adept at understanding when their own charts are read. Okay, so if these nine grahas represent the actors in our play, then they are very central in terms of delivering the lines because they're the speakers, they're the karchis, they're the doers. And we need to know uh, what kind of character we're dealing with. We need to know their MO. We need to know what they stand for, what kinds of things they're going to represent. Even though thematic material is derived in other ways, not just the meanings of the grahas, it's definitely a huge piece that has has to get blended in, synthesized in, because a human life is so complex. It must be that there's a huge number of pieces in the jigsaw puzzle that have to be skillfully put together, or a huge number of threads in the tapestry that have to be skillfully woven together. So Graha is a good place to start, and a good place to uh, start in our understanding of how thematic material is derived is back to what we've already been discussing. This is why I said there's nothing new. <laughs> and what have we been discussing? We've been discussing that we uh, learn about the nature of the grahas by observing them. So the natural sky becomes our first teacher in terms of how we're going to think about the different roles that the grahas have. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. So before I even go into that, uh, you know, start to enumerate things, um, I want us to think about the three uh, right means of gaining knowledge because this is going to play into the derivations of the meanings of the grahas and also into a larger, uh, much larger um, canopy or canvas of how things work in this tradition. There's, I've alluded to this in the past. There's a, a tradition or a way of thinking about things which um, uh, has us sort of memorize a lot of things about something, you know, just lots and lots of facts, and to try to utilize those facts and integrate them. That's one way of looking at the world. Like the vast number of elements in our periodic table in the Western tradition and then there's another view, which is much more the way sort of old world science works, and and certainly the Vedic Sampradaya works, which is out of the bindu, out of the one, comes some categories of things. And then um, out of those categories, maybe a few more. And if you understand those categories very, very, very well, everything can get created from that. It's a really amazing, almost mind-blowing way of thinking of things. And in some ways, the, the less you have to um, enumerate and the more you can derive from knowing a few things very well, 
uh, the more uh, brilliant you are at creatively categorizing. See what I'm saying? Sure. It's a really different kind of concept, but it's the difference between someone who creates uh, afresh uh, with everything that gets introduced in their world and someone who uh, is simply is a cataloger. Mm-hmm. And there's less creativity. There's less um, uh, expansive ways of putting things together if one simply, simply catalogs. So in learning about the grahas and everything they stand for, we do memorize, but we memorize in a way that uh, brings us to the heart of the essence of that planet so that when in the future some new thing comes our way, by understanding the essence of the graha, we can categorize that new thing in terms of um, what graha might um, be a proper fit, a good fit, or maybe more than one. Okay, so that may sound a little abstract for right now, but hopefully I'll make that a little more concrete uh, as we go along. Because my purpose is not to just say the sun is this and the moon is this and the no. My purpose is to inspire all of you out there to think. Okay, so let's get back to this idea of right means of gaining knowledge. Um, in uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, uh, he introduces this idea that there are five vrittis, fluctuations of the mind. And one of them is pramana. And pramana is uh, a kind of mind fluctuation that doesn't lead to pain. The others can because they are not, and I don't want to go through the whole sort of, this isn't the place for the yoga sutras, but they can lead to misunderstanding. But because pramana is the right means of gaining knowledge, it leads to non-painful um, vrittis or mind conditioning. And, and under that category of pramana, there are three um, subcategories listed. And this becomes very relevant to our discussion. The first one is called pratyaksha. Pratyaksha is, um, we could say, direct experience, direct perception. Uh, often in this tradition, uh, the eyes and sight is used as a metaphor for all the five senses. So what we see is true, okay, in, 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 a, in a sense, and in the sense that um, our experience is a direct and proper means of gaining knowledge. And so the emphasis on what you actually see as a means of understanding the graha is sanctioned in this tradition in the sense that it is one's direct perception. Okay. Second is this concept of uh, anumana, which is uh, inference. The idea here being that if you have seen a number of times that every time there is fire, there is also smoke. This is the, the example that's given in Shastra. Then over time, when you see smoke, you can infer that there's fire. And that also becomes uh, a legitimate means of gaining knowledge. And inference is a very important um, concept in this process of enumerating 
significations of the grahas. The third right means of gaining knowledge, we could say, is agama, which basically we could say is the bundled precepts that are handed down first through the oral tradition, you know, later described. Um, those things that have co- been cognized and found to be true and form the body of the tradition. So we also uh, have this idea that proper study of Shastra is another right means of gaining knowledge. And we're going to see how all three of these uh, limbs of pramana have uh, uh, an important role in this endless job, I might say endless job, of describing our whole reality in this lifetime, in this samsara, in terms of the characteristics of the grahas, or the opposite way, how the characteristics of the grahas uh, enable us to describe everything that's happening in the samsara. So how's that for uh, overarching? <laughs> well, it's, so, it's comprehensive, comprehensive as one would expect. <laughs> okay. So with this in mind, it should not be any small wonder that, uh, or big puzzle that the ancients looking at the sun, the very center of our um, particular solar system, obviously, that brilliant star that's the giver of life, would have certain things to say about the sun that should be obvious to everyone, which is the steadiest thing, that which we set our calendars by, and the moon as well, but the sun in this particular instance, that which we... uh, expect to rise every day, that the concept of time is derived from one of the huge components of the concept of time, that always comes back after the winter solstice, right? Always comes back the next day. That steadiest of all um, entities in all of our lives. Of course, the sun is going to have characteristics like fixed, like steady, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that it's the center of our solar system and because it's brilliant and effulgent, of course it's going to have characteristic meanings like the central nervous system, the brain, and because it's light, the eye, um, fire, uh, authority, I think I mentioned the king, you know, the glory uh, generosity because it gives its light without charging us anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Atma, how can we forget that? Because the sun is sort of the all to us and the qualities of sattva because sattva is light. That which um, leans towards light gives us, um, gives us knowledge. It presides over, uh, over uh, organic matter so the sun is uh, is associated with the datu of uh, of mula datu representing vegetables. Its constitution is pitta. All of this uh, is easily derived from simply our observation. Do we get the idea of this? Oh, absolutely. And I th- I think that the um, 
you know, if you if you understand what I think of as the personality of the planet, um, you begin to see that all of its uh, all of the things that it represents just really spring from that. But where does the personality come from? So this is where I'm going with this. It mm-hmm. comes from these three qualities. It comes from this first quality of, of pratyaksha. Mm-hmm. How do you observe it? And based on that observation of it, you can already start to go through this process that I've started to go through simply based on observation. Then we get to inference, Right? So if the sun is observed to be this brilliant, effulgent center of our universe, then you can start to use this idea of, okay, so if it's the center of our solar system and we're talking about um, uh, a country, you know, the, or the, the, you know, that from which everything else, um, uh, or the authority of the, of the solar system, that mm-hmm. which everything else revolves around. Then if you think of it in terms of a country, what would the sun represent? Or let's say in ancient times, a kingdom, what would the sun, well, it would represent the king. If you think of it in terms of a body, what would the sun represent? If, you, if you're thinking of it in terms of the central nervous system, the sun would represent the brain. If you're thinking of it in terms of the circulation system, what would the sun represent? The sun would represent the heart. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So you start to take what it is, some quality that you've observed, and then you go through the anumana process, the inference process. And the, um, this tradition and many ancient traditions very strongly uh, work with analogical thinking. So things get linked analogically. And this kind of, uh, of inference like that uh, is an example of that. So that's the next big piece. And again, we could go on and on and on. Who is the king of the animals? Well, it's the lion <laughs> or four-legged yep, right, creatures right. in many ways. And, and on and on and on, right? Then uh, we have the third thing, the agama. And so uh, here I think a lot of what you're um, driving at uh, also comes from the agama. So we can already um, start to characterize the personality of the sun, even before we get to the agama, right? We could say the sun is authoritative, that the sun is uh, effulgent, the sun is grand, the sun has dignity, couldn't we say that? The sun has power, couldn't we say that? It has leadership, Everything, everything circles around it. We could say even on the, on the negative side, and it's okay to do that too. Well, the sun must be self-centered. And so in some way, in some people's charts, that might happen. Maybe the sun, you know, kind of overdoes it, overly effulgent. That could happen. Maybe pride. Okay. So these qualities can be there as well. But, uh, uh, a creativity, we could say from the sun. Some people say, no, the sun's fixed. It's not creative. Well, it creates everything, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, so, all of these things uh, become then part of the of the personality of the sun, and then to make it even more exquisite and even more diverse and even more exciting and even more uh, going right to our hearts because we learn on the intellectual level, but we also learn when things get related directly to our emotions and our experience. 
And that's where Agama comes. And Agama is not only in the form of something like Jyotisha Shastra, where, you know, we learn this is this and this is this and this is that. It's also in the form of the mythology, you know, the Puranas, all of the tales that personify uh, the Grahas. The Grahas also are uh, represent certain deities, right? Yeah. And so the stories of the deities who the Grahas represent give us even more information on how a Graha might act in a chart. So I'm sure you've got a sun story for us, Ben, <laughs> that could exemplify a little bit uh, of how we might look at the sun in a chart. Well, one of the stories about the sun has to do with a little problem he had with his wife, Samya. Uh, his wife got tired of always being around the sun because he was so hot, she could not be close to him for very long and couldn't even give him a hug. So she decided to take care of the situation rather creatively. Um, she wasn't leaving forever. She just wanted a little vacation. So she enlivened her shadow uh, and created a clone of herself. Now, shadow in Sanskrit is Chaya, and that was the name of her, her duplicate. And as she uh, went off, she uh, hid at her father's house. Uh, her father was Tvastri, who is the architect of the universe. And while she was gone, the son, who I suppose, like most men, was really kind of none the wiser, uh, ended up having uh, children with Chaya. Um, Savarni was one, uh, the first child, and then Saturn was the second child, and Tapati was the third child. Well, <clears throat> one day, uh, Chaya loved her children very much and wasn't quite as attached to uh, the children who had come from Samya. And she uh, got angry at Yama and cursed him, saying that his legs would fall from his body. Well, uh, the son had to come and sort of ameliorate the, uh, uh, the curse. And uh, actually what he did was rather clever. He said that uh, some worms would nibble some of the flesh from his feet and uh, then would fall down to the earth. So technically fulfilling the curse. But uh, with his suspicions, the son summoned Chaya, asked her what was up, and she confessed. And he, of course, divorced her on the spot and then went off in search of his wife. So he went to uh, her father's house, Tvashi's house, and uh, said, uh, you know, do you know what's going on with my wife? Because she wasn't there. She had run off and turned herself into a horse. Well, the first thing that uh, uh, Tvastri did was he decided to help. Uh, he certainly explained his daughter's position and put the son onto his lathe, and he ground away uh, part of the intensity of the sun. And the pieces of the sun um, uh, became the discus, uh, Sudarshana Chakra, uh, Vishnu's weapon. Uh, it became the trident, the weapon of Shiva. Uh, Kubera, the uh, god of wealth, uh, uh, took uh, a piece of the sun and it became um, his, his car, his vahana, what carries him around. And then um, Shiva has a son by the name of Kartikeya, 
who symbolizes Mars and is sort of the aggressive general, and he received a piece of the sun in the form of his spear. So now um, the sun was looking for his wife and found her on the earth, having taken the form of a, a, uh, a horse. Uh, he turned himself into a stallion and uh, sort of gradually... Uh, um, got uh, um, got close to her, and um, they became, uh, in quotes, friendly. And the outcome of that were the Ashwin twins, um, which are um, associated with the Nakshatra Ashwini and are the divine physicians. So there's a, a quick little sun story. So thank you, Ben. You know, I'm, that's one of, I'm sure, countless stories that, you know, that you have right on tap that I can call on you at any time to produce. Uh, but good see that this is uh, an endless source of information about not only the, the meanings that the grahas, the roles that the grahas wind up playing according to their meaning and personality, but also their mode of operation in a chart. And that story is a, is a, a beautiful story and sort of resolving this idea of how can the, um, you know, how can the giver of all life uh, also cause problems? Well, you know, you have to understand, uh, the nature and the mechanism of the sun. The story illustrates it beautifully. Thanks for that. So. Well, let me just add one, one other point on that and that, uh, it also shows the brilliance of, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the verbal, the oral tradition of, of India in that these stories are so much easier to remember than a list of characteristics. The planet always operates in a way astrologically that is consistent with the stories that are told about him. And so the mythology is sort of self-reinforcing. It, it can give you some great insights into um, you know, the ways the planets behave uh, in a person's chart. Well, you know, it's it's nice. This is a very nice segue, even though, um, you know, coming to Shani next wouldn't be uh, our logical um, sequence, but you've just inspired me to uh, actually read a little something. Um, those of us that aren't privileged to know this Agama so well, to know these stories, uh, I've been in working with students trying to inspire them to create their own. <laughs> <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> to and to create their own stories. So you know, I had a, the pleasure of uh, teaching a group fairly recently, and one of the things uh, we wound up doing was you know learning some of the grind, grinding work of learning some of the meanings. Uh, but I asked them to actually write a story, their own story, by which they will understand uh, the grahas. So um, I'm going to read a story now. I, I, Understand that the spirit of this was to pack in as many meanings of Shani as this per person possibly could, but to try to make it uh, into something charming and something that she would remember these meanings of uh, of Shani with. And she really inspired us. So, uh, so I'll just read this, uh, dear friends. After some delay, it has finally come to my attention that many of you perceive me as harsh-hearted cruel and malefic. Now I know I may look a little scary, tall and emaciated, covered with dark, coarse hair, and have big teeth. 
<laughs> I wear old, black, ragged clothes, and yeah, I do walk a little funny, but hey, you would too if you were 100 years old and had deformed thighs, arthritis, rheumatism, paralysis, and a chronic vata deranged nervous system. And besides, what's the hurry? I live out here on the edge of the solar system, all alone in freezing cold. It's not like I get invited out anywhere like my friends Venus and Mercury. They're the life of the party. Admittedly, when I do go out, it's to some pretty unsavory and dirty places like sewers and garbage heaps and prisons and cemeteries and ruins and other places that are in general kind of lonely and melancholy and neglected. Heck, I might even decide to hang out in your basement when you've abandoned your house to go on a long-distance journey out west. But if you ever looked for me in an ashram or in a hermitage, you would find me there also. So I could go on, but I wanted to get you a little feeling for that. But here's another little part that I, that, uh, I also like. Here's the deal, and I'm pretty firm on this. If you have behaved badly, violated natural law, and transgressed dharma, I'm going to give you grief, sorrow, and poverty. I can't help it, for I am Ishwara's servant. So please, please, please don't try and appease me with your iron bangles and sapphires or lapis lazuli rings. I'm a Dharma lord. Do you really think you can sway me with a bunch of minerals? Now, on the other hand, if you've acted in accordance with natural law and upheld Dharma, and if you were to feed black oil sunflower seeds to black birds on Saturday and or pray with a pure and devotional heart, I will bestow upon you the discipline, responsibility, practicality, consistency, and constancy that's required to be successful at whatever you choose. I will also bless you with wisdom, patience, and insight. So if you're up for it, I'd love to come and visit with you. I could stay for a short time, say January 20th to March 9th, which is the season of the year that Shani rules, or a slightly longer period of seven and a half years, or if you're really game, 19 years, which is the dash of Shani. If that doesn't work for you, please feel free to write to me. It may take a while, but I should get back to you in about 30 years. All the best, Shani. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So uh, it's a wonderful student who uh, who put this together. And, of course, there's a lot more in there. But you could see that um, if you understood the nature of Shani, how would Shani manifest as food? How would Shani manifest as a plant? How would Shani principle manifest? And that is why it's much more important to learn the essence. And then when something like an airplane comes along, there isn't anything about airplanes in all the laundry lists of descriptions of the planets in the, in the Shastra. Mm -hmm. So how do you describe it? What about ice cream? So let's think about, okay, ice cream. Well, ice cream is cold, shiny. Ice cream is sweet, Jupiter. Ice cream is dairy, moon. Ice cream, if it's a designer ice cream, is luxurious and expensive, Venus. See, so the same thing could be described in many, many ways. And the world becomes alive. The grahas become alive. And the things that one could say about what a graha is doing in a chart becomes alive once you get to know the nature of the grahas. 
So now let's astronomically look at the moon. You're not going to do this for too many um, more grahas, but um, if we look at the moon, we notice the moon changes all the time. It's the most, um, uh, uh, the queen of the shape-shifting, right? Right. And, and so it's surprising and it's innovative and it's changeable and it's the fastest moving of all the grahas. So travel and uh, fickleness, all of these things start to get both um, derived from the direct observation. It's the queen because it's the reflected light. I'm not, I'm, ladies out there, um, you know, this is a, a tradition, a very old world tradition. So let's, you know, not get our backs up. Think of it in the spirit that it is. <laughs> it doesn't mean we have to think that way today. But uh, and then the colors they represent the sun um, reading right out of um, uh, Jataka Parijata. The sun possesses a form with dark red rays. The moon is a youth with a white body. Uh, Buddha or Mercury uh, bent green grass, like Dorva grass. Kuja is pale red color. This is what we see. Jupiter has a body of yellowish hue. Uh, Shukra or Venus is white, and Shani is dark in form. This is all direct perception. And then the Anumana, the inferences from that. And, and so for the moon, the inferences of the fact that the moon changes shape all the time, we could get this idea of innovative, of imaginative, right? Sure. So it becomes so much fun, you know, so much more fun than, um, than having to uh, labor uh, over lists of things, but then some labor is necessary. Some amount of uh, vocabulary uh, is necessary before one can then start to um, flow uh, from one's own ability to put things together. So if we go on to Mars, then one of the things that, now remember, we want to start this from observation. We observe that Mars is reddish in color. So like the sun, there's some heat and so then we get this idea of pitta, we get this idea of warrior, we get this idea of battles, we get this idea of argumentation. Uh, and then we also notice that Mars, and we don't notice, this has to also come from either Agama or someone who spends a lot of time noticing, that Mars is very irregular in its orbit. Okay, um, This has been worked out, astronomers know that. So we get this idea of irregular, erratic, in some way, um, kind of the rugged individualistic um, person who does it in their own unique way. So idiosyncratic in some ways, also innovative. So this becomes the analogical thinking coming out of, or the anuma coming out of the direct observation. And so it goes with all of the grahas. We can go on and on. But my purpose today was to show how these meanings come to be from these three main um, ways, the right means, so says Shastra, in the Yoga Sutras, of gaining knowledge. Uh, Prachaksha, direct observation, Anumana, inference, and Agama, the body of the tradition in the form of Shastra, in the form of uh, Parampara, the oral tradition, in the form of... Um, 
all the great epics, um, the Mahabharata, all of the epics, the Puranas, uh, the poetry, so many astrological references uh, that we have libraries full of information that would help us understand the role of the Graha. And then who is it that has to put that together and say in this chart, in this particular case, this Venus who represents beauty and the arts is sitting in the career house and by our knowledge of what constitutes a strong graha and a weak graha and who is a benefic graha and who is a malefic graha, we know from the Agama that Venus is benefic. If it's sitting in its own house, in the 10th house, in its own sign, Swarashi, uh, maybe it's retrograde also, so uh, it's very visible right at the midheaven. Um, that person might have a brilliant career that deals with uh, art or beauty uh, or creating harmony in some way, um, something very refined, something high class. And so this is how the pieces start to come together. <laughs> 